The Second Act podcast is brought to you by Chin Whiskers Beard and Hair Care. Chin Whiskers is an affordable, Canadian-made, 100% natural men's grooming line. It's available at your local Tommy Guns Original Barbershop, Amazon, or at chinwhiskers.ca. Welcome to the Second Act Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Act Podcast. Today we are honored to welcome a Saskatchewan and Canadian country music legend, a gentleman named Donnie Peranto. Donnie first came to prominence on the national stage as a member of Neil McCoy's band in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. Uh, Donnie actually, we talk about in the pod, had the distinction of, of being the only member of his band that recorded and toured. And, and he talks about why that was, but it's, it's a pretty unique story. Donnie's a, a friend that I've made over the years and his his story of, of figuring out what he wanted to do something kind of off the beaten path at an early age and just figuring out a way to make it happen. Um, the ups and the downs, you know, um, the misconceptions about what it's like to be a professional touring musician and and then kind of what the upside of, of sticking to your guns and seeing it all the way through looks like. And, and he's had he's had the successes. I mean, 32-time Saskatchewan Country Music Award winner, uh, six-time Canadian Aboriginal Music Award winner, a, a three-time Juno nominee, not to mention being a part of, you know, uh, a huge phenomenon in Neil McCoy's meteoric rise to success. And and he still figured out a way to just kind of make it all make sense to him. And he brought it back to, to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, where, where he started off doing his own thing. And, you know, the success that Donnie's had is not by accident and it's not by luck. It's a lot of hard work. It's um, zigging when everybody else zagged and, and, and he got, got an opportunity to work with some amazing people and his, his nature and the way he looks after the people around him resulted in those people remembering him years later and helping him out. People like Charlie Daniels and people like Harry Stinson who, who really didn't have to help him in his second act and did because of the way he behaved during his first taste of success. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, this is my first live potty audio podcast. Um, so you'll, you'll hear some issues with the audio and that's all live. I just left it in there. I thought what a, what a great music, uh, live professional musician, what a great, um, guest to take this leap with. And he, and he really couldn't have been better or more accommodating. Um, Don's just a, a wonderful guy, a great friend, and I couldn't uh, couldn't do him any more justice, so we'll just turn it over to him. Welcome, Donnie Peranto. Oh, thanks, Gord. How you doing, man? Uh, it's just unbelievable. I, I, I say this often. I'm finding myself saying this more and more. Is it floors me when I reach out to people who have these crazy stories like you do, These, these just so much life in your in your time on the earth uh, and you're willing to sit down and talk to us uh and, and talk to the audience about some of the things that you that you've done some of the things that you've learned um so i i do want to uh go through a couple of things here i did some digging on you and i've got uh 32 time saskatchewan country music award winner could be i, I think it's 32 times the only thing i did gord was I, I looked back a few years ago and i just said okay i'm just curious since 2002 i came back home i retired from neil mccoy and I started my solo career. How many times from then till now was I nominated? And what award shows? So out of eight award shows nationally known all across Canada, and one was in the United States, 
I was nominated over a hundred times. Yeah, well, I mean, nominations. Th- that's like, the whole, just like the whole list here is incredible. Canadian Aboriginal Music Award winner six times, Juno nominated three times, yeah. um, 2001 SCMA International Humanitarian Award. There's got to be a whole story around what what you did to garner that that award. Like it's ha- it's incredible that some of the things that um, learning to to play guitar and pick a fiddle and sing and stuff. Some yeah. of the opportunities it's it's given you. Well, you know, and that's what I look at. It it, it, it all starts with uh, you, you find that passion that you love that you want to do. Yeah. And and it's like I tell everybody, it all starts with a G chord. You know, j- jump on there and grab your instrument, whatever it's going to be. If it's the fiddle, mandolin, guitar, I don't care what it is. But if you have a passion for it, and you have that drive. Set set your goals and always try to set them high, and go after them. You know, and never stop. And that's basically what I did, you know, because I was the youngest of four kids in Prince Albert. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. The uh, first guitar I ever played was basically like taking out a library book from school. We had to sign the guitar and we got to bring it home for a couple of weeks. And music teacher showed me a couple of chords and that's how it started. So I really started playing guitar first. And then fiddle came in when I was 14, picked that up. And then I got serious with that and just took off from there. So let's talk a little bit about kind of your formative years in Prince Albert uh, how many kids in your family there's four total and I got two older brothers and an older sister and I'm the youngest of the four and I remember growing up my mem- first memories man when I goes all the way back to is uh, to a two bedroom home that we had and and I knew we didn't we didn't have and we lived in the city of Prince Albert we didn't have running water we didn't have a sewer like literally there was an odd house out back if you wanted to use it in the winter time like dad rigged up something and but uh even baths everything i can remember that just when i was a little kid and i look back at that and i and i told my mom i said i can remember it, but my little buddy next door he had running water they had a toilet like how come we didn't and she says because we were poor we didn't have a lot of money but what we had what what we could afford to get you we could yeah like, you know and just so coming from uh, very humble beginnings to doing uh finding that passion in music and and uh i give credit to my people always say well who's who's your mentors with music who are the people that really influenced you the most and i say this now it was my dad and my dad used to play music all the time when i was a kid and he'd have the eight track tapes records and he played all the old country stuff and the fiddle music that's right right. i just i remember listening to that when i was five years old then when i was in my teens my brother wayne the oldest he introduced me to the clash acdc oh, london calling yeah head yeah all of that stuff man and just and all those albums and so all of that just well just formed in my mind that when i play music all of that comes out in my style in yeah my music so i just have that a wide repertoire of music that's in my head that i can pull out and was there was there like you know, I remember last summer we were sitting around here, COVID, COVID respectful, of course, we were sitting around and you played and, and, uh, I asked, you asked if anyone had a, had a request and, and I said, what was the first song that you sat down and played in front of the family? And you played a song I wasn't expecting at all, Code of Many Colors. Code of Many Colors. And, and Good it was, memory. yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and it, that was a surprising song for, for you to say, this is the one, this is, the, yeah. and um, was there another song like that, or, or was there like an aha moment for you as you were doing this that you were like, wait a second, I'm, I'm actually better at this than, than a lot of people? For and, me, the aha moment, I've always loved playing and I've loved singing. As I started, like I said, I started playing guitar when I was 12, 
But when people would come over to our house on a weekend get-together, yep. and Dad would always say, go get your guitar, play and sing. So I'd play and sing. And then, and then of course, you know, you get that that, that applause gets addictive. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And when I sat back and started playing, that was the, that was my go-to song. It was Code of Many Colors. And then I wanted to learn more, so I was a huge Merle Haggard fan. He was the guy I wanted to sing. Like. Yeah, he's the original yeah. outlaw, right? So yeah, when you sit back and you're doing some of his songs, like Sing Me Back Home and stuff like that and that's where it started for me just honing on my voice yeah but then as i picked up the fiddle when i was 14 there was a switch that hit and everything changed yeah i just dove into that instrument like you wouldn't believe and poured my heart and soul into there because like it's like you know explaining it this way some hockey players they pick up a hockey stick and it's an extension of their body yeah they just know exactly what to do i knew what to do with that fiddle when it was in my hands it became an extension of my body, my being. So it got to a point now, I didn't even, not even thinking where my fingers were going to go, where the bow was going to go. I felt yeah. where it was going to go. That's when you have that instrument, man, that just takes you to the next level. So it was, at the time, I mean, even as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, there's, there's still other kids out there playing the guitar, and you have people you can play with and learn from. And as a 16-year-old, as a year old you know fiddle player was there those people around you that you could learn from or was there older folks that, that were showing you how to do it there were older folks like in, in my town there was this uh there was some like you know to me iconic heroes that i looked up to there was brian sklar who was a well-known fiddle player in yep. prince albert who went off to you know to nashville and did all of that thing and toured on the road so we, i always looked up to him one of the first fiddle tunes i learned was uh boil them cabbage down and it was on an eight track tape of this group called the Western Senators, and Brian Sklar was the fiddle player in that band. So I just remember telling people, you know, that it, it was tough, you know, try learning a fiddle tune on an eight-track tape. <laughs> you know? So anyway, the uh, other fiddle player that helped me out a lot was George Piston. He was from Prince Albert, another well-known fiddle player, but he was an older guy. And uh, just sitting back and sitting down with them, they would show me things, and I was like a little sponge. You know, take that and just keep, keep doing what I do. So, so now you're you're doing this, and you're you know moving through your high school, your formative years. Um, was there was there a moment where you thought maybe maybe this this is for me? This is something I can do. You know, there was a time, Gord, when I sat back and I had a decision to make, and that come when I was uh, I was very fortunate when I left high school. I had a full time job already already there for me, and once once that had happened, uh, I was talking to my brother Wayne. And he, he was my boss, as a matter of fact, working at the PA Bottlers mm -hmm. and making Coca-Cola and the Diet Coke and all that stuff. And our, my uncle was our foreman. So, and it was my uncle's weekend band I was playing in at the time. And when my brother had told me, you need to do something with your life, he said, you're going to be, you're almost 19. You're the last one in the family. All of us, like my brother Rick, my sister Sharon, they all had, you know, uh, a family started he said you're the only one that can leave and go do something so he said get out of here get out of PA go do something so I wasn't sure what I was going to do and I almost went to the Air Force oh wow I was going to give up music and just say I want to go to the Air Force because my dream my ideal dream was I was going to do four years with the Air Force come back and apply to be a police officer that's what I thought I'd like to do and then literally that's when it happened and I, and I had met uh, Grant Carson and Sean Carson. They had come through uh, Prince Albert, and they were playing at a bar. And I walked up and just jammed with them 
on a Saturday afternoon jam session. Went up and played three fiddle tunes with them. And that was it. And I got the call the following week. And they said, you want to go on the road full time? Come and play music for a living. That's when my life totally changed. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. Like, um, PA Bottlers, you bring that up. Like, I have to think at that time, there was the mills around Prince Albert and the Bottlers were like the... Like, that was the holy grail. Like, you get on there and you're set. You you have your job and you're good to go. It's it's all kind of... And you were... And your family was in that mode. And you... Yeah. St- but they knew enough to say, hey, the, uh, Don's got some talent. He's got something special going on here. And then through a series of, you know, fortuitous events, you, yeah. you have the opportunity and you, yeah. you take it. So... I guess at that age, you, you don't understand the gravity of something like this. You're just going and doing, getting, getting to go play your your fiddle on the yeah, road. And, and really, I had no idea where I was going to go or where it was going to take me. I just knew that this was an opportunity. And the hardest one to convince was my dad. Oh yeah. I was the youngest of the four kids, and I was I was dad's boy. Yeah. He didn't want me to go. And he was he was this close to having all four of them out he, doing good things yeah, and on their and own. I was and not, still yeah. living at home, and yeah. he just he liked that, and he just didn't want me to go. Right, you know, and he just says, "I don't think you should do this because there's not a lot of guys that's making six dollars and thirty cents an hour, a full time job." There you go, working at PA Bottlers. Yeah. And I says, "No, Dad," but I said, "I have an opportunity to go play music for a living." And you see, going going even back real quick, my dad's father, my grandpa, was a fiddle player. Oh, yeah. who also supported his family playing fiddle. Right. But I don't have no memory of him because he passed away when I was only two. Oh. So I have no memory of Grandpa. But they say a lot of the talent from Grandpa came down to me. Well, I would have to think he came from somewhere, especially yeah. especially when you're talking about the, the instrument feeling like an extension. That's, yeah. that's something, like that's Eddie Van Halen-esque, right? Like that's not, uh, that, that's born into your soul and, and you found the outlet for it right yeah, yeah. You know, and like, like my mom told me too and this is what i still carry with me to this day and i'll probably till the day i die it's a gift what what you're given is a gift don't take it for granted because it can be taken away as fast as it was given to you right and that's why i always just try to be who i am and just stay humble so the, you're out with the carsons uh touring making yes. it happen mm-hmm. um What's so? So what time? Like, what? What's the calendar year and, and when all this calendar is happening? Calendar year in this was 1986. 86. And, yeah, and I just turned 19 years old, and I was uh, about to become 20 that that year in 86. So I sat back and uh, we started touring in uh, March or February of that year of 86. We started touring, and we just toured and play six nights a week in the bars. Yeah. And get out there and and uh, but then we got really a cool opportunity to go to Europe and go play in England. So as I sit back, and going, really? So I'm playing in the bars, and the next thing you know, I'm on an airplane, and we're flying in September. We're going to England. And I'm gone for seven weeks overseas. And I thought, man, I've barely been on an airplane in my life, and right. I'm going over there to play music, and it's fiddle that brought me over there. So as we go, and we're touring, and we're touring around London, uh, Wales, uh, the Scotland, uh, the Isle of Wight, and we're just, just, it's unbelievable. Spent my 20th birthday in London, England. Wow. You know, and I thought, as I look back on that, that was the aha moment when I was younger to say, now I know something's coming. Now we got to, and so once you have that dream, as I said, my life went in steps. Yeah. Even to where I am today. Every dream, my dream was to get on the road and play music. Now I'm playing music for a living. Now I'm in England. Now where am I going to go? What's next? So that next goal was to keep playing until the day come we met somebody that could bring us to the U.S. 
So was that something that you you were always cognizant of? Was that step by step mentality to get to the next goal? Um, have you know achievable smaller goals? Like you didn't break out thinking I'm going to be on the Grand Old Opry stage someday. You broke out thinking I want to get an opportunity to play music for a living. That's and right. then and you, so was that something you always did? Is that by nature See, how you are? Or, even or? going back, Gord, when I was a kid, when I started playing fiddle, I used to walk around and just, you know, make up jokes and I'd laugh at my mom and I'd play the fiddle and I'd say, someday I'm going to play on the Grand Old Opry. Oh, so someday, that was, yeah. I said, someday I'm going to live in Nashville. And I used to tell her, I said, I'm going to have a big house. Says, I'm build you and dad a little cottage out back. And she used to look at me and say, ah, you're a big dreamer. Yeah. You know what? Dream big, anybody listening right now, because trust me, it can happen. Yeah. So that was always in my mind. I knew I could see it. Yeah. I could visualize it happening. I knew I'd be playing for a lot of people and just set my sights, but I didn't know how it was going to happen or when. And that's the fun part, right? And it was the beauty of the whole thing. Yeah. I look back on it now, but that's it's nice because when you're passing on information like this to anybody that's listening, right. it could be some young fiddle player out there listening to me now. What do you do? Dream big. Make that dream really big, but then take your time getting there. Because it's not going to happen overnight. Take your time. You're going to and enjoy the ride. And yeah. Always remember, remember all the stuff that you're doing along yeah. the way. Well, and that's that's the kind of the crux of you know why I wanted to do this podcast was it, people get so caught up in, in setting goals or achieving goals that maybe even aren't set out by them mm-hmm. that they forget to to take stock of all the things they're doing along the way. And then we get to talk to somebody like you or. You know, uh, I've spoken to ex-NHL players, and, and they have this opportunity to look back on all the things, and they say, no, you know, I was living in the moment when I was playing uh, bars in, in London, England on my 20th birthday, or when I was playing junior hockey when I was 17 years old when I moved away. I was living in the moment. I was yep. taking stock of all the things, and that's really cool because it just seems to me like so many people don't live in the moment, or they're not aware of it, even if they, they are that uh, it, sometimes it just takes a nice little, maybe an hour out of your week listening to a podcast to somebody else's story who you walk by them on the street. I mean, you go buy your groceries, yeah. you're, you're in the, the extra foods in, in Prince Albert buying your milk and your eggs, and somebody walks by you and has no idea this incredible story that you have. They don't know who you are. Yeah. And, and really, there's so much to learn from people just all around us, right? You well, exactly. Know? And that's the thing. All you have to do is ask. Yeah. But, but even talking about that, like what you just mentioned, Gord, that another good way to look at that is just say, stop worrying about tomorrow and next week. Because if you're going to spend all your energy worrying about what's coming, you're missing what's happening right now. In totally. Front of you. Yeah. You're missing that life, so enjoy your moments. Enjoy your moments like this, like I'm doing right now with you, and I'm, I'm digging this. This is fun. Yeah, well, I've been looking forward to this for uh, for a whole year since we started talking about it last year. So I guess the, the one question I had when you were talking about this is, in in my mind, um, you know, the, the heavy metal and the, the punk rock, that all translates between North America and, and Europe. Very Does fiddle music the way we play fiddle music here in Canada, mm-hmm. does that translate to the UK the way I think it does? Or? Absolutely. It does, eh? Absolutely. Because what it is, is when it comes down to it, is this, this is the one thing about this instrument that, that I can tell everybody. It's such a versatile instrument. That's why you will see, well, violin or fiddle, whatever you want to call it, but you'll see that in bands like John Cougar. 
You'll, you'll see it with, like, Rod Stewart. Yep. You'll see. The, 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 they'll have that instrument because it's so versatile that you can play. And one of the things I used to love doing for me is when I'd get over there and play, it's not even playing fiddle music, but just playing the fiddle behind songs and how you would play. Oh, how yeah. gel just well, with that and learning how to do that. And in the meantime, you're looking out, like, back in 86 in London, England, I remember playing, and we played this small little bar, and that's when punk rockers just started coming out and this dude walked in with a mohawk just a punk rocker and had earrings and just all these tattoos and i'm looking at this guy and he's just watching me and just digging what i'm playing right and i thought wow so when i look at that music's a universal language if you can play it and let it speak properly right it's going to get through to anybody well and it's it's interesting that you say that about about the fiddle like it can be it can be a roller on the canvas like Charlie Daniels, yep. or it can be the fine little Bob Ross That's happy it. accident over in the corner. It's such oh, yeah. a, it is a unique instrument in that way, and exactly. and as an as a musician. Like that's that that's on you to figure out when do I go nuts and when do I just lay in the background yeah. and and it's like it really gives you an opportunity to be the star of the show, to be a part of yeah. the show, to be. The, the special guest, right? Yeah. And it's like anything. You can ask a hockey player, when is the right time to... Uh, the older they get, they, they kind of get more seasoned right. as they're playing. But when they're younger, you can ask them, well, they're, they're full of piss and vinegar, like I always say. Right. You know, and so it's just, you get anxious and you get edgy and you just want to show everything I've got in two minutes. I'm going to just get out there and pour my everything. Whereas when you start to get a little older, you're going, I'm going to take my time. Yeah. I'm going to take my time. There's a time and place when to shine and when to blast, but you can still do it. Because I, I, even at my age right now, I have people come up and say, man, you used to play with a lot more fierce when you were younger. I said, nah, I, said, just, I wasn't sure where I was going. Yeah. I said, I could still play that. Yeah, way. and I see it's still there. It just there's doesn't a, need to be there every time. time. Yeah. When to do it. Yeah. Yeah, so I, that's that's what I like about this. So you're, at this point, you're over in, in Europe, or you've been over to Europe, and you, and you come back, and, and now you're... You're pretty sure this is what you you're at least going to take a stab at making your your career yeah. in music, right? You, so this is what you're going to do. The Carsons is who I was playing with, Grant Carson and Sean Carson. Now Sean and I, we kind of made a pact when we were over in England, and he was about to turn 20, and I said, okay, we're going to give ourselves till we're 25. We're going to keep beating up and down these roads, all across Canada, just keep playing the bars and doing that. But if nothing happens by the time we hit 25, we walk away. And we go back to our hometowns and we just do what we got to do. But we're only doing this until we're 25. I met, and then the next step happened. Both Sean and I were playing with a lady by the name of Joyce Smith in Edmonton, Alberta. And Neil McCoy came to town. And Sean and I, we went to uh, the Cook County Saloon and walked in on a went Tuesday night he started. Because I thought he started Monday, but it was a Tuesday and literally by the time we got there, we played this bar in town in Edmonton that was called the New West Hotel. And we only played on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays from 7 to 11. So we had the rest of the night off. So as soon as we were done on that Tuesday night at 11 o'clock, we put our instruments away, jumped in the vehicle, and we drove across town to the Cook County Saloon and walked in to catch Neil playing his last set. Okay. And that's, that's when, you know. So we're watching this. There's only about six people in the bar. But Sean and I went right front and watched him, and we could not believe what we were witnessing and hearing. And just this guy, you talk about a natural-born entertainer. That was him. Yeah. Bar none. One of the best of the best. 
And there was a lady that come up and a waitress who I knew her husband from playing fiddle. And she said, do you want to meet the guys? Do you want to meet Neil? I said, I'd love to. I don't know how to do it. What's the protocol? And she said, well, I'll send over the road manager. So the road manager walks over and he comes and he says, you guys would like to meet Neil? I said, I'd love to if we can. Okay, so he brought us a couple of passes and put them down. Now, reminding you, there's only six people in the bar. Yeah. But this is their protocol. So we went back there, and we showed him our passes, and he said, yeah, come on back. So we went back in, and Neil met us, and he said, well, what's your names? Told him our names, and he said, you guys play music? Yeah. And he said, what do you play? He looks at me, and I said, well, I play uh, fiddle, mandolin, acoustic guitar, and, and I sing lead and harmony. Mm-hmm. And he looks at me, and he says, I'm looking for a fiddle player, but he said, I can't afford one right now. And he said to Sean, and I just went, oh, whatever. So he, Sean said he played guitar and harmonica and he sang and he's kind of the, the leader of the band and yada, yada, yada. And once all of that was done, we go back out front once we talked to the, the band and the band went back up to play. And they finished off the night just by one more set and Neil was by himself standing over by the bar. So Sean kind of nudged me and he said, go talk to Neil. I said, about what? He said, he's looking for a fiddle player. Man, this is your chance to get going. Like, yeah, he, he laid the welcome out for you to come talk to him. One, yeah. But I looked at Sean and I said, but he can't afford one. He said, go. And he kind of pushed me out of my stool. <laughs> so I walked over and I said, hey, Neil. He says, yeah. He says, uh, he said, band sounds good, don't it? And I said, yeah. I said, they're great, great musicians. And I said, are you serious about looking for a fiddle player? And he said, yeah, but I'm serious. I can't afford one. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'd love to play for you if I can. You know, bring my fiddle down here. Do you guys have a rehearsal? And I'll, I'll, I'll do an audition for you. If you like the way I play, when you can afford a fiddle player, I'll fly down to the United States and try out again. I said, would that work for you? And he says, yeah, man. He says, come in come in tomorrow at 2 o'clock. We're doing a rehearsal. So I show up the next day and uh, jump up on stage, and Sean was with me. So they started playing, and they plugged me in. And I didn't know that Neil was kind of telling all of the band, this guy, you know, just get him off the stage within 10 minutes and let's just move on mm-hmm. get back to rehearsal but just let him have a chance well I got up and played and as soon as Neil heard me play all the band kind of turned and looked at me and they thought okay is the plan still on or what do you want us so to do one here? by one each band member started testing me yeah and I went around the bass player I knew he liked what I played because he loved western swing and that was really my bag I love playing western swing like Bob Wills music and with the fiddle it just it was really cool and the guitar player, he jumped in and did something. And then uh, it went all the way around. The keyboard player looked at me and said, well, sometimes we play in different keys. Because to them, a lot of fiddle players only knew how to play in about three or four keys. Right. Well, I looked at the keyboard player and said, well, I know all 12 keys. You just tell me whatever key you play in. They said, I'll, I'll be there with you. So that won him over. So then the drummer comes in and he says, okay, so do you play Orange Blossom Special? I said, sure. He said, I'm going to kick it off. Now, the drummer told me later he kicked it off at the fastest tempo that he could play. He didn't realize that was my starting tempo. So when I went to nudge him, we're going to go faster, it's like his oil light was about to come on. Yeah, yeah. And by that time, Neil come up to me and he says, okay. He says, we, we got to talk. So the next day, they, they went back after that rehearsal and the band members went back to Neil and said, take 25 bucks a week off our paycheck there's a hundred dollars extra hire that kid right you gotta hire him because if you don't hire him he said somebody else is gonna come through town and take him so neil went back and against his wishes and his wife's wishes and his manager's wishes back home and he hired me and away i went so now you're you're 
a touring musician. So at Neil McCoy, I'm, I'm thinking this, like I remember him, like mid to late 90s, you couldn't turn a country music radio station on without hearing it. And within 15 minutes, you had a Neil you'd McCoy def- song. You'd definitely be hearing so, it. So you were kind of, and he was playing Edmonton to six people at this point. So there's there's a period of time there where you are, are a big part of crafting Neil McCoy's career, I'm guessing. Well, you know, and what was nice that year, and this was, now we're talking 1991. Right. And it was March of 91 that I started playing with him, and we took off and went down that summer. We go in, and he had an album out, and I was playing, and there was this producer that come out to watch us at his show. His name was James Stroud. So people may not be familiar with the name James Stroud. He was the producer that, that discovered Clint Black. A reasonable his, name in country music. His yeah. big <laughs> thing was is that he loved using the bands, the road bands, to play in the studio. So he come out to watch us play, and he says, I love your band, Neil. He said, we got to get him in the studio. So Neil come to us and said, we're going to start recording a new album, and you guys have just been invited to come to the studio. Which is, is this kind of abnormal unheard at the time? Of. Unheard of even? Unheard yeah, okay, of. okay. Because they always use the A players, your studio right. guys, because of time, and they're so fast, and they do that, like, clank, bum, 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 and they're done. So for us, it took us a little bit longer. So we go in, and that's, that's summer of 91, and we go in the studio, and I'm sitting there, and the next thing you know, we're playing all of this material and it took us three days they brought us in for three days and then we were taking too long okay so neil finally said okay uh we have to bring in the big guns and no offense yeah that's fine okay so i went out that night we're sitting at a bar with neil and we're kind of celebrating if everything that happened so far and i was telling neil i knew all the studio guys in town who are you going to use on acoustic guitar are you going to use uh sonny garish or paul franklin on steel are you going to use uh, just who are you using on drums? How about this? And how about this? And I got all way to the fiddle. And I said, are you going to use Johnny Gimble? Just my preference, use Johnny Gimble or use Mark O'Connor? And I said, those are my heroes. Mm-hmm. Use those two guys. And he looked at me and he said, well, James actually wants to keep you on. You're the only band member he wants to keep on to keep playing the rest of the album. And I looked at him. I said, are you serious? He said, yes. But he said, but we're having a meeting tomorrow morning. And if the band says no... I'm sorry, the answer is no. Yeah. And it's up to the band. So I went to the guys, and Neil had the meeting, and of course the guys all said right away, hell yeah, let him go. Let him go play. So what I'd do to all the band members, every song, I'd go to each band member, and I'd say, okay, I want you to help me with this song. So a piece of you comes in with me. Right. That's just my way of saying thank you for letting me do this, because they didn't have to. No. But like Neil said, too, you know, it doesn't make you better than anybody else either. Just so it was a hell of an opportunity. So that was the whole ride, and that's when the studio thing started. I was the only band member that got to go in for all of Neil's records. So, so you're a part of like Wink and all those yeah. those, and and you're along for that rocket ride. Yes. Um, and I suppose this is probably, uh, you know, without getting t- too personal, this is like your like Neil is the star of the show. You yeah. guys are the backing band. Like. That's right you know you're doing very well you get to make a living playing your your instrument and you're seeing all this stuff but i'm guessing there's a discrepancy between like his face on the billboard he's making the money and you guys are doing fine enough i'm guessing yeah. but but you're you're understanding now that you, this is a great rocket ride to be a part of but yes. but what's this look like is this something you can do forever do you want to potentially be the a-list studio player or or how does that kind of 
how does that ride shape your perception of what being a, a professional musician? I think the main thing is is going through that ride all through the '90s, and it was a hell of a ride. You know, meeting people, doing things, uh, doing these TV shows, flying airplanes, you name it. We yeah. were everywhere. Yeah. We, went, we basically went around the world with him. And I thought, okay. And so, but once what hit me is once you get to a point, and I was 35 years old sitting in a hotel room one day, and I'm looking up at the ceiling, and I just sat back, so what the hell am I doing? But not what am I doing? Who am I doing this for? Right. Am I doing this for me, or am I doing this just for a job? And it became just a show after show, same old thing, same old thing. And then my attitude was starting to change when I was on stage. And just I didn't want to be there. And I thought, that's not fair to the people buying tickets. So if I got to that point in my life, I need to just bow out. And I hit him with the news, and I just shocked the hell out of him when I said it. But I said, I'm sorry, i got to give you my two weeks' notice. So what do you, and the first words out of his mouth were, what are you going to do, go back to Canada? And I says, I don't know, Neil. I said, right now, I said, I'm just going to head back. And I was, you know, married at the time. And, and I said, uh, my wife and I were living in New Hampshire. And I had a job set up there to go back to. And so I did that. And, but, you know, at the end of it, once it was all said and done, who was I trying to fool by going back and thinking that I was happy, listening to George Strait music on my headphones while I'm working and throwing boxes for a living? Right. And dude, I just got off of two 45-foot Prevost buses with a semi-truck, and we had a crew. And I'm sitting there going, yep, I'm happy, I'm happy, but why do I feel like driving my truck off a bridge? Yeah. Yeah, and that's got to be, know, that's got to be like uh, something that, it, you know, you, you can, you can fool some of the people all the time, yeah. you know, like you can you, you fool all the people around you, but if your passion is playing that music, yeah. And you've done it, and now it's like now now I'm done playing somebody else's music, and I've got this fire inside of me, yeah. and that has to be uh, kind of when you're when you're shooting yourself straight, you look in the mirror, and and you make that like you say it out loud, like I want to do this for me now. That has to be then like kind of to the point of this podcast, like that's when your second act begins, right? Yeah. You get an and opportunity the, to basically the second act started is when I did come home, and I decided I wanted to come home, and my wife and I at the time we were not happy together because. It's like anything. When you're gone 300 days a year on the road and you come home and all of a sudden you're apart, living from, away from each other all that time, and all of a sudden we're together. Yeah. And it's like, oh, now, now, now it's, so you're either going to make it work or you're not. And it went sideways fast. So I said, okay, that's fine. Uh, just move on. So I bought a plane ticket to go see my mom. I wanted to fly home. Back you know, to Prince Albert. Back to Prince Albert. You know, because uh, we had lost Dad in 19, 1990, September okay. of 90. And uh, I'll backtrack really quick. i got to tell you this quick story. Uh, Dad always knew I wanted to play on the Grand Ole Opry. And that year in 1991 was the first time we got to play on the Grand Ole Opry. Cool. And I remember I called Mom and I said, all my dreams are about to come true tonight. Uh-huh. What do I do now? What do I do now, Mom? And she says, make up new ones and go get them. Never stop with just one. So at this point, she you, she's forgiven you for being the big dreamer, and now she's oh, encouraging you to go chase just, all these dreams. Just, just keep yeah. going. Yeah. And so the thing is, but I said, I wish Dad was here. And she says, he's with you. Oh, yeah. He's watching. Oh, you betcha. You. He had the best chair, seat in the house. There was one chair that was empty, and I looked at that chair, and I said, my dad's sitting there. Yeah. I knew that. So, you know, and it's just, but I've always carried that. And then, but what happened was I found out, and it was an elder that actually told me this. They said, your creativity was being shut down. That's why you left. 
I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, in the studio. Did you play much fiddle anymore in the studio? Because music was starting to change. And I'd say, no. They didn't bring me in the studio towards the end because they might have one or two tracks that had fiddle on it and they just used somebody else. The guy down the street, So I'm yeah. sitting there playing acoustic guitar on stage a lot more and I'm going, this is not me. I don't like this. So then I decided to come back home and literally jumped in my mom's vehicle once I got home and drove around for about 20, 30 minutes in my hometown of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. And it was almost like PA just went, welcome home. So I got home and I told my mom and I said, you know, I could live anywhere, right, mom? She said, yeah. Well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not sure. I said, I think I'm going to move back home. And of course, being the youngest of four kids, she wants me to come back home. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, nothing more humbling than a 35-year-old kid going back home and live with mom. So <laughs> it was great. You know, but, but I, I did that. And, uh, and then after that, the next best thing that happened in my life, like literally within a week, I had met my wife, met my wife, Patty. Oh, yeah. And her and I have been together since since that moment. And things so things started making sense to you kind of fairly quick after you made the decision to, exactly. to, to leave Neil's band and to make some changes in your personal life and yep. get back home. And, and you started feeling like, okay, this is maybe what, what I'm supposed to be doing at this point. Yeah. Well, and that's when people had asked me, they said, what did it feel like? And I said, it felt like taking six steps forward. Because I was always the fiddle player, back behind the artist. Right. And I just had to move six feet forward to that microphone in the middle. Yeah. And think of everything that Neil used to say, everything that Grant Carson used to say, and Sean Carson, all of that stuff. I would think about what would they say right now. And that's why I learned to tell stories in between songs. Right. It just makes it entertaining for the people listening. Well, it sure does, yeah. That's how you learn to do it. So did you have a bunch of of stuff burning inside of you, or did you kind of, like... I guess the way I picture it is as as around all these creative people, all your life, you're doing all this, probably the first album is like real easy. You have some nuggets, you have some ideas, but now it's like, no, Donnie, you're, this is your, like every three years or however often you got to come up with these ideas and we got to flush them out and they got to be a certain level because, because of the level that you're playing at. So was that easy for you or was that something that you kind of had to to go into I, I think the main thing is with that was when I started in the very beginning was was getting creative with songwriting and that's when I really started diving into songwriting was around 2002 and I had met Patty and, and it's just and, and I was getting older and I thought okay now's the time all these stories were coming back to me and just putting them together and just telling that story and into songs into music and just being creative and it just it fueled me to keep writing songs and keep, just keep playing and so that first album I did, budget-wise, it really wasn't a great, great album, but I had three original songs that I was able to put on there, yeah. uh, had a lot of support from it, and it was just my way to say, okay, this is my first crack at it, let's go. Yeah. So, and the second one that came in, I was able to get a couple of grants, and some people sponsored me because I was starting a tour, doing a lot more things, building up my name around Alberta. There was a bar in Alberta that donated money towards my project. A lady in uh, Fort McMurray donated mm-hmm. money towards it, and another grant from Saskatchewan. So, but just an idea. That album was like thirty thousand bucks to make. Oh wow! And what I did was I hooked up with a co-producer, Steve Fox, and this is what I've learned. Uh, back when I first started, I, I never wanted anyone to take over full credit of producing. I had to have my name down as some sort of a producer. So I don't care what you put me down for, but I said, it's my name at the end of the day, and I'd have to have my name with you. And so Steve Fox said, okay, we'll co-produce it. And that's what we did. 
So then I released a few songs to radio and really started building my name up more then. Mm -hmm. And the more your name gets up built, the more shows you can do. And that led to when Neil McCoy was coming through and played Craven. I opened up for Neil. Oh, cool. At Craven. And it was so cool because when I was up there on stage playing, Neil was on the side of the stage watching me. First time he yeah. watched me and my band play. And he just sat back and he says, man, he says, I, I always knew you'd do it. Yeah. But, you know, because it goes back to that in the back of his bus when I gave my notice. He looked at me flat out and he says, you're one of my only band members that I can see doing something with his music. He said, don't ever stop playing music. You know, and it's so that kind of come full circle for me. And then from there, leading to the next project was another big step. Sitting back, and this one I took out a mortgage on the house. Yeah. <laughs> Second mortgage I had to. $75,000 project. And I went to Nashville, hooked up with Harry Stinson, who plays drums for Marty Stewart, but he's a Grammy-nominated producer. And I think he won Grammys yeah. for producing. And just a fantastic guy and killer songwriter. You know, so him and I got together, and I just asked him if he'd be interested in producing you know, producing me. Because his claim to fame, a lot of people, Canadians, are going to know Corb Lund. Yep. He's the one that helped Corb Lund in the very beginning producing. Oh, okay. So that oh, would be Corb once Corb quit the smalls and decided he was going to go That's right. agriculture tragic name. or whatever he calls That's his right. genre. That's yeah. cool. And he got hooked up with Harry Stinson. So I just reached out to Harry Stinson and asked if he'd be interested in producing me and told him my story. So we hooked up and Patty and I went to Nashville and had a meeting with him. And uh, he heard me sing and said, you know what? He said, let's do it. So he said, but I want you to come back to Nashville. We're going to write. I said, okay, but one condition, oh, Harry. And I said, you, I hope you agree to this. My name has to be a co-producer with you. It's not just you producing it. He said, okay, you're an executive producer. So okay. put you down for that. So he had no issues. But, man, I'm telling you, Gord, that's where I learned how to write. When you get together with the big boys like that, yeah. it's like being in the NHL, man. I bet, yeah. You gotta you play or get get the hell out of the way and just watch them write songs. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that, so I'd try and contribute. And uh, there's just one story I'll tell you. When Harry and I walked in, to, there was a guy we were co-writing with. His name was Jim Photoglow. And I walked in, and I seen all these accolades on his wall and just this big mansion in Nashville. And I'm looking at all this stuff. and I, So I looked at Harry, and I said, who is this guy? He said, Jim Photoglow, you don't know who it is? And I said, no. I said, I'm sorry. He said, uh, Fishing in the Dark? I said, yeah, I know that song. He said, he wrote it. <laughs> so, dude, I'm walking in, I'm just, and then my guitar is shaking, and I'm going, okay, just stop. So I just I just made myself stop, and I said, listen, we all start, it all started with a G chord. Yeah. kept going through my head. And we get back there, and he says, well, what do you want to write about? So well, it's an honor to meet you. And he says, cool. He said, what do you want to write about? Yeah. So we sat around, and I said, well, he said, uh, so Jim looks at me, he says, your wife's pregnant. I just found that out. You want to write a song about, I said, we just wrote one of those yesterday. And he says, oh, okay. I said, what else? You know what? I said, I wrote a song for my dad already. A song was called Postmarked Heaven. And just about a letter that I wrote my dad. And he said, so that's cool. But I said, I never wrote a song for my mom. And he said, tell me about your mom. And both of them had a pad of paper in their hand as I'm telling this story of my mom and my life and what it was like, how mom saved up $300 and she was minimum wage. It took her one year to save $300 and tuck it aside, not tell my dad. And that was the down payment for our first home that we had bought, which is a, lo a low income, low income home, family home. The home was brand spanking new, cost $12,500. Yeah. 
Mom paid $300 down and brought it home to my dad and signed, signed here. Here's the papers. And I was five years old. And I remember that. And dad looked back and said, what's this? It's our new house. So dad would go check. And the first time we walked in, literally in the kitchen, there was a, a chandelier, not a chandelier, just like a light fixture in the kitchen, like your standard light fixture. My dad turns to my mom, there's a tear in his eye, and he says, we got a chandelier. Mm. You know, so all of this, what I'm telling you now is what I told them. And they're sitting back going, yeah, oh, this is gold. By the time I was done, Jim looks at me and he says, you know what? Your mom taught you the most important thing. I said, what's that? He says, your mama taught you how to love. Bang, that was the song. Yeah. Yeah. And it started, and away they went. And I'd throw in the odd little line here and there, and that's what that's what built that song. So then from there, getting that project done, this escalated to, Mama Taught Me Love was so special to me, I had asked Harry, I said, can you, can you do a favor for me? He said, what's that? I said, I play mandolin, but I hear mandolin on this song. Can you ask your boss, Marty Stewart, if he will play mandolin on this cut? I said, sure. Called Marty up. Marty heard the song. He said, you tell Donnie I'll gladly do it. Poof. Come in the studio, and he recorded the mandolin part on Mama Taught Me Love. So then it went from there to, I wrote another song with a buddy of mine, uh, Eddie Kilgallen, and he says, we got to write a song about the fiddle, something about the fiddle. He's so excited and just anxious guy. We had that song written and pre-recorded within 45 minutes, man. <laughs> it was done. And he said, now we got to reach out to Taz. Taz was the original keyboard player with Charlie Daniels. Oh, wow. So he said, we got to reach out to Taz, man. He said, we got to get this. And he said, we'll get a hold of Charlie. Okay, where are we going with this? He said, dude, Charlie's got to play on this. Oh, man, that's a killer idea. So next thing you know, we got a hold of Taz. And Taz remembered me from playing with Neil McCoy. And I told him what was going on. Taz goes back to Charlie. And he says, if Charlie digs the song, he'll play on it. So I played it. And it was called Fiddleback. So Charlie played on this damn song. And it was done. I got Charlie Pride on one of my, or Charlie, you know, Daniels on one of my songs, plus Marty Stewart on the album. And I said, okay, let's go one step farther. I make a video for Fiddleback. I reach out to Taz again. Will Charlie intro this video? He said, I'll go ask him. Bang. Next thing you know, I got Charlie talking about me at the beginning of the video. That's the point in my career when I said, now things are happening. Yeah. Things are really happening. And then there was a, uh, My Girl was one of the first releases I did off that album. Yeah. And we shot the video right here where we're sitting at Candle Lake in Saskatchewan. It was September, long weekend, and the water was just like glass. Yeah. Man, if anybody checks out that video, go check it out because it's just beautiful. This is why Gordon and I stay where we are right now today. Totally, You'll yeah. see why. Yeah. And it's called My Girl. Go check it out. Anyway, so we recorded that video, and it was the very first video we had on CMT. You know, so it, it was great. That's that, and I'll be uh, full disclosure. Um, my girl is is my my favorite Donnie song. I uh, ah, I get an opportunity to hear that, and um, I guess because I've seen you play it live and, and heard you play it a bunch of times, um, I you know it's it's not just a, a radio sensation to me. It's it's I've seen it and it's it's a good one. I, I really like it. I've watched the video a couple of times. Uh, you know when I was going through a bunch of your watched a bunch of your stuff when I was preparing so that I, I could, you know, so I could put some some of these stories, I'd have a, a visual for them. It really, really interesting to see that, you know, at this point your network has got you where 
if you don't have somebody's number, you have somebody who has somebody's number, and you're able to get the Marty Stewart, and you're able to get, you know, Charlie Daniels, for the love, like, that has to be um, almost the holy grail for a young fiddle player, if if you told 19-year-old Donnie that Charlie Daniels was going to possibly play the fiddle on one of his songs that he wrote, that had to have been, yeah, almost like a... It, it was it was definitely wild, like just just a real wild ride. And then the next album that came up was uh, my my last recording, my last my last album that I did was in 20, 2012. And uh, where this all stems from is in two thousand eleven, I, I had a really close friend of mine, Kenny Shields, from uh, Streetheart. And Kenny had told me I was I got nominated for the Harry Stinson album at the Junos, so I went to Ottawa and. Everyone was all pumping me up, and I was on Canada AM, and uh, we'd always do the TV show anytime we went to Toronto. So I did that, and then I jumped on a train. We're heading to Ottawa. Had my wife Patty with me. I had a manager at the time and his wife, and we were on our way to Ottawa to go to the Junos. And it was just incredible. Man, what a ride. And I was nominated for uh, Aboriginal Recording of the Year. So we get there, and Kenny said, call me win or lose. That's okay. So when the awards were done and they announced the winner and it wasn't me, that's okay. I was, I was just happy to be nominated. So I called Kenny. I said, I didn't win. He said, that's all right. He says, now, get your butt back in the studio. Record another album right away because the Junos are coming to Regina next year in 2013. Oh, yeah. And if you get nominated, Elena and I, that's Kenny's wife, they were going to drive in from Winnipeg to come spend the entire weekend with me. I said, okay, one condition. He said, what's that? I said, you come in and sing Snow White with me, one of the Streetheart songs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so that's how that became to be. And so I had Kenny come in and sing Snow White. We were wrapped up with the album. And now fast forward to where we are here today. Uh, we had lost Kenny in 2017. And I had uh, always had this song, and I thought it'd be a shame to just let this go to waste and not release it. So I started thinking about it, and Kenny, also, Kenny and I also shot a video in 2012 when they were coming through town when I was making a, actually the video for Fiddleback that we mentioned earlier. And so Kenny and Jeff Neal made a guest appearance at one of my shows, and we sang Snow White together, and I kept that footage. I had that footage. So what I did was after Kenny passed away in 2017, I just left it, and I wasn't releasing nothing to radio. Then COVID hits, 2020. We're sitting back going, okay, what am I going to do? Now I lost every show that, that I've had uh, besides online teaching is the only thing I had. And I said, I better release something to radio just in case. So I went back and I dug in the album, the 2012 album, and just did some remixes and released those. And then in 2021, just this year, I reached out to Elena and I reached out to Jeff Neal and said, oh, just a question for you guys. Did Kenny ever sing one of his songs with any other artist? They said, you're the only one he did this for. And Elena told me, she said, that's how much he loved you, Donnie boy. Because <laughs> you're the only one that he trusted that he, to go in and sing. So I said, I've got to release this song. So that went from, now, I went back to the co-producer of my last project, who was Bart McKay, incredible, incredible guy. And I said, Bart, I said, let's do a remix of, uh, of Snow White. He said, okay. And I said, I'm going to put it with a video. I have video footage, never before seen video footage. I said, but once we're done there, we're not finished. The icing on the cake's going to be who intros this video. He said, who are you thinking? I said, Kim Coates from Sons of Anarchy. He said, 
you know Kim? And I said, yeah. I said, we met at Telemiracle, and Kim's a huge Street Heart fan. And, you know, Kim's also from Saskatoon. Yeah, yeah. So I sent Kim an email and just said, uh, this is what I plan on doing, and I'd be very honored. I said, if you have the time and can intro this video. Within one week, I had that video back from Kim Coates because <laughs> he just loved it, and he said he loved doing it, talks about me. So if anybody wants to check out the video, go check out, you know, Donnie Peronto with Kenny Shields, Snow White. Yeah, and, and I've, I've checked that out. Yeah. Uh, Kim does a, well, I mean, obviously very talented dude, but he does a great job. Pretty uh, pretty remarkable how, like I said, you know, you, you just you keep doing these things and you get this network built up. And, and not everything, I guess the, the thing that I'm taking from all of this, Donnie, is not everything needs to be a number one hit to be worthwhile. Like you're no. doing all these things throughout and you're meeting all these incredible people. You're getting your name on these projects with, with you know, superstars, and y you're getting the benefit of all of that. Like you, you got to sit down and write a song about your mom with the guy who wrote "Fishing in the Dark." Like yes. when you say that out loud, it it almost sounds like you're making it up. Yeah. But it's so yeah. so incredible that this second act, the where you kind of stepped away from from somebody else's idea and somebody else's dream and made your own. You've had all these things that that just kind of I don't I don't want to say fall into your lap because that's not the case but but you've saw it through and you've had all these incredible things man like that's t these stories are just it, you make it sound so matter of fact like it's it's, like, it, 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 it's it's a really cool feeling you know when when you're going through life and you can look back and reflect on what you've done and what you were able to do yeah but still man remain humble remain humble because I've always carried that that you know it's a gift it can be taken away too oh anytime and so the beauty of where I'm at now with my life is now we'll call this phase three right where am I going with the next project right so I've been in I've been in the process of writing material and the material that I'm writing today is where I'm at today with my life what's the most important thing to me in my life right now it's my family sure my wife you know and the best thing that she ever was able to a gift to me was our daughter right our daughter Juliana who's now 12 turning 13 and to watch her have the passion that I had when I was younger so being 12 years old she's left-handed and taught herself how to play guitar six months ago from t from today this podcast like really in six months time she's developed a style of playing guitar with no help from dad the odd time she'll come to me and ask me what's this chord show me how to do that and then she'll walk away yeah she didn't she wants to do this on her own which is beautiful because that's how i did it i didn't i didn't have that help i just dug and did it on my own to now where she can write songs so during this next next project coming up juliana juliana and i have a a plan where her and i are going to write a song together yeah she will come in the studio with me and this is going to be her first recording with her dad cool to go sing so that's going to be on the next project nice so that's kind of where i'm at today so that that kind of leads into kind of one of the things i i wanted to wrap up with um it, it, this is primarily from sports i hear this um athletes talk about it um but it fits for for musicians as well and they always say kind of your life is summed up by what comes after the comma gord kitely comma husband father brother all those things so let's let's take that out let's take the the fact that you're a father and you're a husband and you're you know let's let, let's say that is a, we assume that's there okay. what comes after the comma for you at this point 
Donnie Peranto, comma. Hmm. I would almost take that as, how do you want to be remembered? Th that's what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. How what? do you want to be remembered once once I'm done? And and I, I basically said that, and that there's, there's a song that I'm writing right now in the process of writing it, when I'd always go up and I'd see someone, even at a funeral, not to sound morbid, but you're at a funeral, and you'd look at that tombstone once it's all done. What you normally have is the, d the year and the date of birth and the year and the date when they passed away and a name and maybe some little quote. But what else? What's in between all of that? Right. So how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? So how I want people to remember me is that I always stayed true to who I was. I surrounded myself with positive people because with positive people, positive things happen. Never surround yourself with negativity. Oh, man. You, you start getting negative and be around somebody that's negative, negative, negative. Well, you're going to turn negative. So just stay positive. Believe in who you are. Stay true to who you are. And remember at the end of the day, who's going to be there with you when you take those last breaths? Yeah. It's not going to be so-and-so uh, at a radio station or so-and-so at a, at a hockey NHL or anything it's not going to be them no it's going to be your family yeah so the older you get the more you realize what's important to me so that's what I want people to remember me for is I stayed true to who I am but oh damn it I surrounded myself with the best people I could think of yeah and that's an old saying those who sow in flames and ashes they shall reap right positive vibes out positive vibes back and i'm finding that especially with the advent of this podcast putting myself out there with it and just saying hey it's an idea i had um 10 people might listen 100 people might listen yeah. i just get to have interesting conversations with people that do really cool amazing things in their life and it, it's been a trip and well, i just and keep and putting and the it's, vibe out it's kudos to you too for doing this you know cause, and, and i appreciate it and then i remember i did one for your son last year like yeah you know, and uh, and just and, and I encourage anybody to do that, and that's good. You, you and the stories you get to hear, oh yeah, from 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 everybody, even besides me, and it, it, it's pretty cool. Keep on doing you, man. So the last thing I want to ask is, um, based off of nineteen-year-old Donnie, uh, jet ski or jetting all over the world with Neil McCoy, Donnie, uh, building your own band and brand, Donnie. What is success today for Donnie? Success is putting your head on the pillow at night saying, did, did the mortgage get paid this year or this month? Uh, all the bills are paid. Everything's fine. Family's fed. And do you still love who you're with? Yeah. And love being that. That to me is success. I would rather have that success right there. And that all comes back to what a buddy of mine said. Brad Johner and I sat down together. Another Saskatchewan artist. And we sat down in a hotel room together one night after we were done a show. He looked at me and said, are you successful? I said, what do you mean? I said, am I successful with radio or what are you talking about? He said, no, just in life. Are you successful? And I said, well, I said, I have my home. I have a site out at the lake that we have built from the ground up. I have my family who's with me. I have a lot of friends still around me. I have friends around me since I was five years old. There's a group of us that next year will mark 50 years. We've all been friends <laughs> since we first met at that first grade. Yeah. You know, it's, but to have that. So I said, I guess at the end of the day, Brad, when you put all of that other stuff aside, am I successful? You're damn right I am. 
like I said, what a what a great um, guy to talk about the Second Act podcast with. He's he's so used to relaying his story, the good parts, the bad parts, the ups, the downs, and all the things that go into it. And and truly, when he moved home in in the early two thousands, that was the beginning of what's been a, a second act of you know uh, success, opportunity. And just, you know, to walk away from it knowing that he wasn't, he wasn't happy anymore and he wasn't putting forth the effort that he needed to and to keep it up for all these years and write these songs and, uh, and be able to put himself out there in such a manner. Uh, what a gift. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me that people are willing to walk away from, you know, what everybody else sees as success and try something different. And those are the stories that we really want to get across again. Donnie uh, was was so gracious and so uh, honest and and it, you know he's just such a humble guy who who talks about the the ups and the downs you know he talked about the the hard times and and how not everything about it is easy and you know that's kind of what we wanted to talk about with this is how things aren't going to be easy but nothing worth doing ever is and it's just been it's been so many conversations uh, with people like Don. And it's just so great, humbling to know that they're out there. And and anyways, I just want to thank Donnie for for taking the time to to come and sit down with the Second Act podcast. You know, it was it was there were some audio issues there. You, you heard it if you made it all the way through. Um, but but it was raw and it was honest. And and we didn't we didn't do a bunch of editing on it. That's kind of what it sounded like if you'd have been sitting on his uh, on his deck at Candle Lake that morning that we talked about it. Again, I'm going to circle back to, you know, like, subscribe, uh, rate the pod. Please, you know, interact with us. Find us on Instagram at the Second Act Pod. That's what we're trying to figure out is, is how to do this better, who you guys want to talk to, who you want to hear from, and, and we'll reach out. You know, we've, we've reached out to a bunch of people that we didn't think in a million years we'd get, and we did. And we're going to keep doing those kind of things. We're going to keep trying to find interesting stories, whether they're names you've heard of or not to talk to and, and maybe there's something out there for everybody that we can, you know, get a little piece of and, and share with the group. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun doing them. We hope you guys are enjoying hearing them. Uh, we, we couldn't be, you know, happier to keep doing it. Liam and I still enjoy sitting down and brainstorming who we're going to get on, what we're going to ask them, things we're going to talk about. So please remember that there's no test at the end and there's no wrong answers. So make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening.